Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. We've had a, a bit of a break due to a family simcha, Mazdov again, and we are back with a brand new topic this week. We're going to be discussing, I would say the title would be, Whose Life Is It Anyway? Do we own our own lives? Does God allow us to make decisions about our lives, etc.? So if you could just talk about that subject, I think it would be very fascinating for our listeners. Thank you. Thanks for having me back and good questions. So the issue really is how autonomous we are from a Jewish perspective. Do we own our lives? Are we free to make any decisions we want? Could we end our lives if we wanted to? What if we were having a lot of suffering? Are we forced to continue? What do you do with a person or, let's say, a patient who refuses treatment when we have treatment? How does Judaism approach that subject? So I'll give it a bit of a, a medical context, if I may, but I think the principles you'll see go far beyond medicine. And the question is, again, how independent are we in our decision-making from a Jewish perspective? And of course, speaking as a doctor, I've had many situations where people have refused treatment, even when I thought that was the wrong decision. I felt we could make an effort and perhaps even take some risks to keep people alive, and they've said, no, they wish to die. Very awkward situation to be in. And finally, we have the problem where in Judaism, we often feel that it's correct to push on and attempt to save life, and the law of the land is not agree with us. So that raises another area of conflict. How do Jewish doctors and indeed Jews function in in a culture that has that attitude? So the background to this subject is that in medical ethical decision-making throughout the world today, there are four very well-established principles that are used to form a background or a framework on which to hang all medical ethical decisions. And those are known as autonomy, justice, beneficence, and non-maleficence. Autonomy means that it is my life and I'll do what I want with it. And in the non-Jewish mode of thinking today, that is absolutely the primary value. It's my, my life. If I don't want to live, it's up to me, particularly in American society, which is very geared towards independence of the individual. The second is justice. And usually that means distributive justice, meaning let's say there aren't enough machines for everybody. It's not fair for somebody to get more than others. So that might trump autonomy. You say, I want the machine. We might say to you, no, because it's not just. The third value is beneficence. Whatever you do must be for the good of the patient. And the fourth is non-maleficence. You may never do something to harm a person or a patient. These correspond largely to what we call the Hippocratic Oath. And of course, as a young medical student, I was required to take the oath. In fact, the Orthodox Jews with me refused to take an oath. So we made a solemn declaration. Hmm. And in fact, the form of the oath was standing next to a dead body at the beginning of our year of dissecting a dead body while the professor of anatomy formally read out the Hippocratic Oath and everyone was required to sort of subscribe to it. So those are the four principles, but there's no question that the primary one among them was autonomy, which means you cannot do anything to me without my consent. And Judaism agrees with all of these. The devil, as we say, is in the details, right? Sometimes they say letting a person die, even a baby, for example, who may be suffering, they say that that is beneficent. That's for the good of the child. We might say that it's not good to be allowed to die when you might be given a chance to live. Or in current society, somebody extremely old, 
society judges their quality of life to be very poor. In Judaism, there's no reason to abandon someone just because they're old. So we disagree with the application of those principles. But let's think about autonomy. Autonomy means, according to the Western ethic today, and in Britain this is certainly the case, in America as well, if I refuse treatment, there's nothing you can do. And therefore, there are cases, for example, today you have religious beliefs. Uh, you have a Christian sect known as the Jays Witnesses. They will not accept a blood transfusion. They say that it's against the Bible, and it's forbidden. Of course, we say that's completely wrong. We have no, no source for that. And if you today insist on transfusing a blood transfusion into one of these people, you are absolutely outside the law and you'll be excluded from practice and you may even be sued for assault. What is very interesting, however, is that British and American courts have always ruled in favor of forcing a child into treatment against the parent's wishes. So, for example, where you have a family that says, we do not take blood transfusions and we refuse permission for our child, British and American courts have consistently overruled the parents against their religious wishes. The language in British law is that the state has an interest in the survival of the child which supersedes the parents' religious views. And so you can absolutely forcibly sideline the parents and give the child a blood transfusion or cancer therapy or various other. In fact, if the parents say they want holistic and naturopathic treatment for cancer and we have chemotherapy that could save a child, in fact, the law will mandate refusing to allow the parents to make that decision and they will treat the child. So when it comes to a child, one can indeed force treatment but not to a sentient, competent adult. I remember a case, which I was not, not my own patient, but I was associated with a case where there was a family who had a 10-year-old child, badly needed a blood transfusion, and the child would die without it, and the parents refused because they belonged to that religious sect. The doctor insisted, happened to be a Jewish doctor, the doctor insisted on doing it. The police actually held back the parents, and they transfused the child. After the child survived, the father approached this doctor was a colleague of mine and said to him, thank you very much for doing that. I was desperate for you to transfuse my child. I was unable to say so because it goes against my religion, so I had to say no. But I was very much hoping you would force transfusion. So you never know how that's going to turn out. But that is the case that you cannot. However, what's not clear is a fetus. Although the courts have consistently ruled that we will save a child's life, an unborn child is a matter of dispute and personal opinion. I was in Atlanta some time ago. The head of the Department of Medicine there told me that um, he had a lady who came into, actually he was an anesthesiologist, he had a lady coming into his hospital at three o'clock in the morning, pregnant and bleeding badly, and she probably would survive, but the baby would be lost. And she refused a blood transfusion based on the religious belief of her religious sect. They said to her, lady, your baby's going to die. She said, it's God's will. My friend told me he called up a judge in the middle of the night. He said, I want you to get out of bed and sign me a court order authorizing transfusion against this lady's wishes. They did. The hospital security held the lady down against her screaming refusal. They transfused her and saved the baby. So that is the lengths you might have to go to when it comes to a fetus, although for a child, that is well-established law. But when it comes to an adult, there's nothing you can do. And so if you, just to give you an example, I was at a medical conference a while ago in California. One of the doctors there told me about a colleague of his who's an emergency room doctor who got a terminally ill AIDS patient in the early hours of the morning who had refused resuscitation if he ever needed to be put on a machine. He did not want to be. But he was uh, in respiratory failure. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. There was nothing in writing. The doctor was not totally sure what to do. So for abundance of doubt and caution, he put the patient on a ventilator and saved his life. He's now being sued in California for assault and wrongful life. <laughs> And if he loses the case, he'll lose his license to practice medicine in California. 
That is unthinkable in Jewish law, but that is the world we live in today. And so today, if you force a patient, even a simple treatment like food, against the patient's wishes, you will be sued for assault. I hate to admit this. I hate to have to admit this. But this charge of wrongful life, actually a famous case arose in Israel, where a child was born with certain handicaps and sued his own parents successfully, his parents and the obstetrician, for bringing him into the world. He said, I would rather never have been born than being born with my paralyzed legs. And you acted against my interests by giving birth to me, successfully sued his own parents and his doctor for a charge of wrongful life. And unfortunately, that's been upheld in a number of cases throughout the world since then. So that is our attitude. Although the law does prevent suicide, they'll go to great lengths to ensure that suicide doesn't happen. Yes. And that's an interesting question in Jewish law also. Are you obliged to stop a suicide? Obviously, this is somebody who wants to kill themselves. The bottom line is you are. Yes, and indeed, you're quite correct. We will try to prevent that, although it's an interesting conflict with the autonomy when a patient says. But, Rabbi, man, as you well know, there are many jurisdictions now where suicide has become legal in certain medical contexts, and doctors are required, or at least are permitted, in a number of jurisdictions, like in Switzerland and Belgium and various other places, to provide lethal drugs for the patient who wants then to take them on their own. And there are one or two places now where you can actually have yourself legally killed in the act of euthanasia, which is, again, completely unacceptable in Judaism. But yes, that is where the pendulum is swinging these days, and we don't believe in that sort of autonomy. This can have tragic consequences. Let me tell you a vignette that I will never forget when it comes to autonomy. I was a final year medical student standing around a bed in a hospital in South Africa known as Baragwanath. This was an entirely black hospital. This was back in the days of apartheid. And so, of course, black doctors are not allowed to treat white patients. And so there was total segregation on racial lines. And therefore, this was an enormous black hospital serving a population of a million people. And I'll never forget the experience of standing around the bed of an 18-year-old, strapping, healthy, young Zulu individual. And the problem was that he had come from the Transkei, many hundreds of miles away, complete, not, spoke not a word of English. And somebody in a clinic under a tree someplace had heard a heart murmur in this young man and somehow managed to get him all the way to the tertiary referral hospital in Johannesburg to have this heart murmur dealt with. What turned out to be the case was this young man had a hole in his heart, which is a kind of problem which gives no trouble at that young age of his life. Blood moving from one side of the heart to the other, and he was doing fine. The problem is that these shunts, as they're called, if they're not dealt with and closed, over a couple of years, the shunt will eventually build up, and eventually the pressures in the heart will change to the extent that the shunt will reverse, and then he'll go into heart failure, and within two or three years after that, he'll be dead. It is absolutely guaranteed to be lethal, but it's easily treated. All you need to do is close the hole between the two sides of the heart, and he'll be absolutely fine. Nowadays, it's even done with a, without operation. You can actually do it transvenously. But in, in those days, the, the approach was to do a heart operation, which, of course, has its risks, but certain death if you don't do it. Well, the problem was you needed consent. There's no way you can operate on a young man's heart without consent. Here's an 18-year-old fellow, hundreds of miles from home, speaks not a word of English, has got no concept of medicine or surgery or anesthesia, and he was illiterate, which meant we required a thumbprint for consent. That was the procedure. If they couldn't sign, so he puts his thumbprint on the consent, and we used to do that all the time. Well, we're standing around the bed, and the elderly Zulu nurse begins to explain to this young man what these doctors are about to do. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to cut your chest open. You know, now, now this fellow, although he was a black Zulu, he basically went white. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, but but you won't feel anything. Don't worry. They'll cut your chest open. No, you'll be asleep. You won't feel anything. Will you wake up? No, 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 you won't wake up. We'll give you a certain medicine. You won't wake up. Then they're going to take your heart, cut it open. I mean, you know, this was completely unthinkable to him, and he completely refused permission. We spent half an hour trying to explain to him, but you're talking about a person from a culture with no concept of medicine, surgery, etc. Unthinkable that you could open his chest and he wouldn't feel it. And in his culture, the only time a person's chest is cut open and the heart is taken is in ritual, you know, murders and ritual use of the, the body for ritual medicines. Mm. And therefore, he absolutely refused. And we were obliged to send him back to his village, hundreds of miles away, to an almost certain death. Now, that is a tragedy of, of cross-cultural medicine. But without consent, there's no way you can operate. That was the law. It's true that a, a superintendent of a hospital can sign consent for emergency surgery to save someone's life, but not against their wishes when they're a competent adult. So these are some of the problems we face in a society that values and indeed insists on consent. And if someone is not in the right mental state, can a next of kin sign consent for them? Excellent question. So in British medicine today and in Western medicine, yes, indeed, if you can what's known as sectioning a patient or consigning them to a diagnosis of mental incompetence, indeed. You get psychiatric evidence to testify that they're not competent, and then, of course, you can indeed sign for them next of kin, or in some cases the state, depending on what next of kin there is. Yes, the trouble is, if the person is mentally competent, you can't do that. Even if the person is morbidly depressed, and they have all sorts of reasons why they're refusing against their own best interests, but if they're mentally competent, there's nothing you can do. Of course, you try your best, you try to give treatment for the depression, but nevertheless, if they... What is Judaism's attitude? We say that you are not free to make any decision you want when it comes to your life. We say that you have certain limited autonomy, and I'll try and explain where that applies, but we do not grant... Judaism, Torah, does not grant total autonomy to a person. You have limited autonomy, and in fact, you are not allowed to say, I wish to die, when there is simple and painless and risk-free treatment... God expects you to save your life and you are guilty of serious dereliction of duty if you say, I wish to die just as serious and maybe even more serious than allowing someone else to die. In Judaism, you are at least as much obliged to take care of your own life as someone else's. And why is that? Is that because we believe that God gave us the life? It's, not, it's almost not ours to dispose of? Yes. Our philosophy is that your life is a divine trusteeship. It's been given to you to use responsibly and give back your soul at the end of your life as clean at least and hopefully better and improved over the way it was given to you, and you are not free to harm yourself, cut your body, or get yourself hurt or, or harmed or killed in any way. Let me give you two very beautiful proofs for this, two very, very beautiful illustrations or proofs. One is a very unusual and creative, and it's this. There was a very interesting rabbi known as Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin. He was from the old Russian Chabad in the 1800s, moved to Israel late in his life, died maybe 40, 50 years ago. He, in fact, was the first editor of the Encyclopedia of the Talmud. He was a very, very creative and original thinker. I recommend to all our listeners that they look at his three-volume work on the festivals, which is absolutely outstanding. I think it's called Amoedim Baloch, if I'm not mistaken. And Art Scroll have done a fantastic job of translating those three volumes into English. Very original. Not only do they give you the main parameters of the festivals, but they give you very sharp and acute insights into very interesting halachic angles. Each section begins with a Hasidic sort of a note or a story, and then it goes into very creative and interesting halachic analysis, very thought-provoking. However, among his writings is a very outstanding and original piece. 
you may have trouble believing me, but it's true and you can look it up. He has a masterful, deep analysis of The Merchant of Venice. Now, Shakespeare, of course, wrote an anti-Semitic play about Shylock the moneylender. Ironically, Shakespeare probably never met a Jew because the Jews were exiled from England for 350 years around that time. But of course, Shakespeare knew that the Jews are cruel and usurious moneylenders. And so he wrote an article about Shylock, the merchant of Venice, who lends money to the non-Jew Antonio, but stipulates that the guarantee for the loan will be a pound of Antonio's flesh. So that if Antonio cannot pay back the loan, Shylock will demand the right to carve out a pound of his flesh. And that's what he will take as collateral for his loan. Of course, as the drama unfolds, the date falls due. Antonio is unable to pay his loan, and Shylock takes him to court in Venice, demanding his right to carve out a pound of flesh. And of course, the real irony of the of the play is that the judge starts lecturing Shylock about the milk of human kindness. You know, this is speaking to Jews who've been pillaged and murdered, and <laughs> you know, by their society. But be that as it may. Now that is the deal, and that is the play. Rabbi Zevin wrote a fantastic legal analysis of the contract. When Shylock writes a contract with Antonio to lend him money and the collateral for the loan will be a pound of his flesh, is that a binding and legal contract? In fact, Rabbi Zevin was not the first to analyze this case. He quotes other interesting halachic analyses. He was writing, of course, in Hebrew, although it's been translated. Yeah, it was published in Tel Aviv uh, some, some time ago. But you can look up that analysis. And it comes to a fascinating conclusion. His conclusion is that the deal is invalid. The contract is moot. Why? Not because a pound of flesh will kill Antonio, but because he doesn't own his body in the first place in Jewish thinking. You cannot pledge security for a loan from an asset you don't own. But it's a masterful piece and very thought-provoking, and it brings out very richly our attitude, which is that you don't really own your body. Let me give you a second proof. There's a classic source, which is the Radbaz, Rav David Ben Zimri. We've quoted him previously, I think, in our podcasts. Lived in Egypt about 600 years ago. One of the great rabbis of his time. And he has a marvelous analysis of the fact that in Jewish law, you may not incriminate yourself. That's called Ein Adam Mesim Atzma You cannot testify about yourself because you are considered to have such a bias and a vested interest that you are, you are not valid. This is what the Americans know as the Fifth Amendment. You cannot be required to testify about yourself. The difference, however, is that in American law, if you wish to, you may. You may. You cannot be required to. But you may. In Judaism, you may not. Even if you wish to confess in Jewish law, it's completely expunged from the record. You have no power to incriminate yourself, no matter how much you wish. We take this law so seriously that we will even split testimony. That's called Palgina Dibura. For example, let's say a Jew confesses to a crime, or let's say a sin involving a partner. So let's say this Jew confesses to a, an intimate relationship with a partner who is involved in that, in that sin. Jewish law will hear your testimony about the partner, but not about you. Why? Because you're free to testify about somebody else, but you cannot incriminate yourself. So we'll split your testimony and hear that that other person committed this crime or sin with whom? Some unspecified individual, but not you. So you're not allowed to incriminate yourself because, why? The Talmud says, because you are related to yourself. Adam Karov Etel Atzmoy. Since you cannot testify about a relative, which is common sense, you can't testify about a brother or sister or a parent or a child. By the way, your wife is not considered a relative, she's considered you. Even more close than a relative. But be that as it may, every husband should remember that. But the point is that you cannot testify. And since you are related to yourself, you cannot testify about yourself. And that's clear, and that's what 
the Radbaz quotes. And then he says something fascinating. If you analyze halakha, or Jewish law, you will find that this prohibition, this exclusion, applies only to criminal cases. Only to cases in which the punishment is lashes or death. Right? Of course, we cannot give lashes or death sentences today, but nominally, in Torah, there is such, such a concept. Where the sin or the crime will result in lashes or death sentence, that's where this law applies. But in what we call civil matters, in financial matters, you can totally incriminate yourself without limit. If you want to admit to larceny, theft, embezzlement, fraud, etc., which might destroy you, absolutely destroy your life, you are totally believed and allowed to testify. Says the Radbaz, what's going on? If you're not believed to be objective about yourself when it comes to criminal matters where there's lashes and death, why are you believed to be objective about money where obviously you'd have a very strong bias? And secondly, if the Torah does credit you with being objective enough when it comes to money matters, why does it not credit you with objectivity when it comes to the others? I mean, what is the difference? And his answer is absolutely beautiful. He says the reason is because when it comes to lashes or death, the reason you are not allowed to testify is because it's not your body and it's not your life. Who are you to get this body lashed or this life extinguished? It's not yours. But when it comes to money, it's your money. If you want to pay, pay, baby, pay. It's your money. <laughs> now, obviously, you should look after your possessions with response, but it is in your legal jurisdiction. And therefore, Judaism will trust you to confess to a financial crime because it's your money. And if you want to pay, pay. But when it comes to having your body damaged or your health harmed or your life extinguished, it's not yours. So that's a very beautiful proof. Let me finish by telling you something absolutely outstanding and, and very, very interesting. In Israel today, modern, secular Israel, unlike every other Western country, there is a law that the Knesset has enacted, this goes back some 20 years, the law, that allows you to force a patient into treatment against their explicit wishes, even if they're a competent adult. There's no other country that allows that, and it has very limited ambit, this law, but nevertheless, the law exists. It is subject to the approval of an ethics committee. And the only hospital, to my knowledge, that actually uses it is Sharia Tzedek Hospital, but it is a law on the books. What does the law state? The law states that under certain circumstances, you can force a patient into treatment against their wishes. Now, of course, the Knesset did not accept it on religious grounds. The Knesset, although it was proposed by a couple of orthodox right-wing rabbis to the Knesset, but they didn't pose it in halachic terms. They said that it would have been rejected outright. They proposed it in legal terminology, and the law was accepted. The law is very interesting. It allows treatment. Of course, halakha agrees. We have halachic responsa in which, for example, I can think of one where a young 21-year-old man, this is going back more than 100 years, had his foot amputated against his wishes. He said, I cannot bear the thought of losing a foot. I'd rather die. The rabbis of the time forced him into an amputation of his foot. They said, you are making an unwise decision. It's better to be alive and have only one foot than die. Today, of course, that's unthinkable in, in the West, as I said. Now, the Israeli law, I'll finish with this, the Israeli law has four conditions, a number of conditions. The conditions to apply the law are, number one, the patient must be certainly dying. Number two, the treatment you're offering must be guaranteed virtually to be life-saving. Number three, there must be no reasonable alternative. And four, very interesting, the doctor forcing the patient into treatment must make a decision ratified by the hospital's ethics committee that if you force the patient into treatment, they will later thank you. Now, what, what is the meaning of this? The meaning is this. Every doctor, and I can speak from personal experience, has often had patients who refuse treatment against their own best interests. They know they ought to go through the treatment, but they're such pain or so depressed 
or they feel so such a burden on their family or all sorts of other reasons that they refuse treatment. And you can see that it's against their best interests. You know if they weren't in pain or they weren't depressed, they wouldn't be saying that. And yet your hands are tied. The Israelis have taken the view that you could force a person into treatment because later they will agree that what you did was right. So you are acting in line with their wishes. You're not overriding their autonomy. You're just reconstructing their autonomy post facto. right? Because you could see ahead and they can't. Indeed. And the proof is when they recover, they'll agree that. Now, this will not help you in Israel if you have a patient who has Jay's witness who says you're offending my religion because they will not agree later that you couldn't do. The law would not help you in that case. So I'll give you an example of the law. They had a girl in Charitetic Hospital in her early 20s. She unfortunately had cancer. They thought she wouldn't live for a year. She suddenly developed a bowel obstruction. So she was in agony and she would have died within days. She refused treatment. They said, look, we'll do a small, simple operation. We'll relieve your obstruction. You'll be comfortable and you'll live whatever months you have. Absolutely refused operation. They said to you, you're going to die in agony. Totally refused. I know the doctor involved. They invoked this law. They forced her into an operation totally against her wishes. Two days later, when she recovered from the surgery, she crawled down to the hospital florist and bought a big bunch of flowers for the doctor's over. So Professor Steinberg, who was involved at the time, he went to her and he said to her, listen, why did you refuse? She said, I was too ashamed to tell you I have a phobia of needles. <laughs> now, in some other country, she would have died. Yeah. But in this case, it was a silly objection. And when they forced her into it and she felt much better, she was totally... So that is an example of, I'll finish with one final story. There was a case where they almost used this law, but they didn't need to. It was a 75-year-old lady in Svat, and she had gangrene of a leg, and she was dying. And she refused surgery, amputation of the leg. She refused it. They said, lady, why are you refusing amputation? You're going to die, a gruesome death. If you, She said, because, look, I'm 75 years old. If you amputate my leg, how long will I live? Another few years. And then what will happen? I'll go up to the Shemaim, to heaven, and I'll walk around there for all of eternity, missing a leg. <laughs> they said, lady, that's not the right way to think. She said, I lived with this leg. I'm dying with it. And they couldn't convince her. What did they do? The Israeli health department flew up the chief rabbi of Israel. I think it was Rabbi Amar at the time, the Sephardi chief rabbi. They flew him up in a helicopter to Tzfat. He sat at her bedside and he said to lady, I promise you. She was a Sephardi lady, a Sephardi rabbi. He said to her, I promise you, if you have your leg amputated, which is what God wants, you'll wake up in the next world, you'll be healed and have a leg. She said, Rabbi, if that's what you say, I'm signing for surgery, no problem. <laughs> but that was a case of um, simply a little, uh, you know, spiritual counseling which was needed. Anyway, Rabbi, Mano, this has been a brief overview of the question of our attitude to consent and coercion in Judaism. Bottom line is that you have certain jurisdiction. I did not talk today about where you indeed have the right to make choices. There are two classic areas in Judaism. One is in certain circumstances of terminal therapy, which I think we discussed before. And the other is circumstances of very risky treatment, where you'll die without it and may live with the treatment, but the treatment is very risky. Those are two classic areas where we turn to you and say, what do you want? But in many other areas, we do not regard people as free to make decisions against their life or their own health. Judaism requires you to guard your life in a much more active fashion than that. Thank you, Robert. So just a quick question. I know, obviously, that you lecture in England and around the world on medical ethics. How do hospitals around the world or doctors, how do they react when you tell them about Israel's method? Yes, indeed. I was last week at a conference in New Jersey. The Chemed Medical Center in Lakewood organized this. Rabbi Asher Weiss was there and Professor Steinberg. I had the honor of being 
one of the presenters. And in fact, this was this was in, indeed discussed. In my experience, and I've spoken about this all around the world, people take it very well. They think it's a very sensible law. Some Americans object because they say, under no circumstances can you make up your mind about what the patient would want. Right. But I've never had any strong objection to this. Um, in fact, it is medical practice around the world when you find a patient in those circumstances to do your utmost to convince them that they will be feeling better later and do it. The question is exactly where the red line is drawn. The American doctors are torn between the preservation of life being utmost importance and the American New Age rights sort of movement. Indeed. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Robert. So are we continuing next week on, on this subject about what you mentioned before? I think we talked about that in a previous session, right. namely terminal care choices and very risky care choices. Yeah, we discussed um, that with COVID. Yeah, so let's move on to something else. Thank you very much indeed. That, and of course, is if you give me the autonomy and independence to make that decision. <laughs> I'm not the doctor. Thank you, Robert Hanson. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.